Well, here we are again, Tuesday afternoon, 2 p.m. This is BibleQuest.org. We're glad you're able to join us on this Tuesday afternoon. We have a very exciting program today. I wouldn't even say it's controversial, but very intriguing. And uh, before we get into that, though, um, well, let me introduce the panelists first, and then I will do a, a, I will read a short verse. Uh, let's see where we got. Stephen, how are you doing? Good to see you today. I'm doing well, Drew. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Scott, good to see you. Hey, Drew, how are you today? I'm doing great. Jonathan, glad you're here with us too. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. I'm Drew, your host. And um, if you're coming in on the Zoom app, I recommend the Zoom app. It uh, has a little bit more functionality. You can use any of the buttons there, the Q&A button or the chat button. Give us your feedback, ask us questions. You can even call in with the Zoom app if you wanted to do an audio question, give it to us over your computer audio. If you're coming in on the Facebook page, you can also put your comments in that page. Well, let's see, we're doing this on Scott's page, right, Jonathan? Right, yep. Mm -hmm. Scott's page, oh, good, okay. So yeah, give us your comments there. We'll be monitoring your uh, comments and questions coming in there. But before we get started, I wanna read just a couple of verses out of Galatians chapter one. There are six, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. You'll understand why I selected that scripture shortly, but Stephen, you wanna um, address the question that was sent in by one of our viewers? Yeah, sure, Drew. So uh, we had a viewer send in a question uh, and their question has to do with writings outside the Bible, um, like the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. In just a minute, we'll take a moment to distinguish those, uh, to explain what those are. And they had two particular concerns. They've encountered some teachings that uh, would seem to contradict the Bible teaching on adult baptism by immersion, number one. And number two, what happens in eternal judgment? And the question of like, are there more than two destinations uh, for the righteous and the wicked um, in the life to come. And this is relevant. I mean, a lot of people have these questions about baptism and about judgment. Um, but as you just read, Drew, it's important that we are careful to distinguish between what we have provided for us in scripture and then what other writings would say. And to remember that God has provided everything that we need in scripture and to be very careful to stick to that. Um, and if anything is contradictory to that, that we would, we would reject that. Um, so this is gonna be important as we approach these two questions this afternoon. So where do you wanna begin then, Stephen? How do you wanna, why don't you give us a definition of the, the, those very interesting words you use, apocrypha and pseudopigrapha, is that what you said? Yeah. So uh, the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha are two broad titles for two groups of writings. Um, the apocrypha, is a group of writings that um, largely belong either in the Old Testament time frame 
uh, or in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, many of these writings would appear in like the Catholic Bible as extra books in the Old Testament or books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these books sometimes contain helpful history, um, but they're not part of what we would call inspired scripture. And this is one thing that's helpful to recognize about among the many different kinds of writings outside the Bible. There are some that claim to be scripture and are not. Um, and there are others that are not claiming to be scripture, but they are helpful history. That doesn't mean everything in them is true. It also doesn't mean everything in them is false. And one of the simple things you can do if someone is bringing to you a claim that oh, this book should have been in the Bible and it was suppressed for centuries or, you know, these sensational kind of things it is just to say, well, let's read it. Let, let's just open it and look at it together because most of the time, if you just read the writing together, together. it's going to be really clear that it doesn't belong in the Bible. Um, this is particularly true of things like the Gospel of Thomas. Um, you, some of y'all may remember the Da Vinci Code that came out a while back, and one of the big things in that was the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, this has been, you know, kept from Christians, and if you just take a little bit of time, I've read the Gospel of Thomas. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's, it's crazy, uh, some of the things that you find in there. So, it, on a very practical level, if someone is raising a concern about should this book be in the Bible or not, just read it. And nine times out of 10, you'll be able to tell right off the bat, this doesn't even pass the smell test. Yeah, the, the way that the New Testament is written, in fact, the whole Bible, that there is obviously figurative language and literal language, but it's factual. When you start reading the way uh, the Gospels are written and the letters in the New Testament, you're looking at vocabularies and usage of phrases, of statements of fact and information as opposed to what I think you're talking about, a lot of this other stuff is mystical or extraterrestrial, if we can use that word. I wanted to add a comment to clarify why, like when Stephen said, some of these books can have true stuff in them, historical value. And he's not talking, for example, about uh, some of these ridiculous books, but some books of history. For example, the Jews had books of history. You know, Romans had history books, Greeks had history books, Jews had history books. Uh, so for instance, the Maccabean books that are in a Catholic Bible, uh, they were, they're, they're known as Apocrypha, which means doubting. Uh, and so the original King James actually included like Maccabees and such in there, but with the title doubting. Uh, but we get a lot of historical information about the Maccabean revolt from back in the mid-160s uh, BC. Now, I don't believe everything in it is true. Uh, for example, one episode, a miracle is one thing, but this isn't described as a miracle. It just sounds like a bad death scene from a B-movie. Uh, there's a guy, he's on top of the wall, and he gets shot through with an arrow, and he knows, no, maybe he's not on top of the wall yet. I think he runs up there. He gets shot through with an arrow and he knows he's going to die. And he thinks, well, you know, in my death, I should take out more people than I took out in my life. So he runs to the top of the wall and sees the enemy down below and dives off down the wall, near coming down at the enemy 
to kill them. But they look up and they see him coming, and so they clear out. Bam! Uh, he gets up, and now he uh, runs through the crowd, holding his guts in his hands, and he runs up to a precipice or something somewhere with all of the blood now completely gone from his body or something pretty much that along that line in the text. And he stands there and he gives his dying speech, you know? And uh, now if it had been pre presented as a miracle, you know, God prepared a great fish and swallowed Jonah. Okay, you've got something supernatural. Um, but that's just a quick example of, even though that's a historical book, some of the historical events in it, you say, probably didn't happen quite like that. Speaking of historical books, there was a follow-up question about uh, how, how does Josephus compare to some of those other books? Josephus never claimed to be inspired, right? He was just a historic, uh, historian, a Jewish historian from the first century. That's right. And so we have some, some categories of these books. Again, sometimes it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all description. A lot of these writings have to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. I will say that the, the distinction here between the Apocrypha, which as Scott said means doubted, uh, many of those are his books having to do with Old Testament or in, uh, between the Testament history, whereas the Pseudepigrapha literally means false writings. Um, and it's writings that whether it's someone from the Old Testament or someone from the New Testament, that someone else has written a document claiming to be someone from the Old Testament or someone from the New Testament, and they are putting words in that person's mouth, and they're not actually that person. That's a different kind of thing <laughs> where, you know, you're, you're claiming to be, the Gospel of Thomas, for instance. Oh, these are the secret sayings of Jesus, which he told to Thomas Didymus, you know, the twin. And if you're making up stuff and putting it in Jesus's mouth and said that he told it to Thomas, that's not helpful history. That's just a false writing. <laughs> and so, again, those are very broad categories, the Apocrypha, these doubted books, and then the Pseudepigrapha, these false writings. Um, and of course, they weren't originally published as, hey, here's some false writings for you. But that's a broad title that's been given to them now, looking back and saying, these weren't really written by the people that they say they're written by. What, wasn't that those titles given back early on in the first, you know, second, third centuries by Christians recognizing that these were false? I'm not sure when the title came about, but uh, it's certainly the title that we use now. So it's helpful to distinguish, again, when people are talking about extra-biblical writings, well, are we talking about the Apocrypha? Are we talking about the Pseudepigrapha? Or what writings are we talking about? Because there, there's no shortage of uh, writings that either claim to be inspired or people say should be in the Bible or things like that. But even if some of them do have some truth in them, and because there would be truth, I mean, if it's history, and it doesn't mean that it's inspired, and it doesn't mean that we should take the whole book as it's um, authoritative, uh, an authoritative book from God, and therefore we need to add that to our spiritual understanding. I mean, that's the difference here. And again, there's a big difference between a historical book and these fake writings where you're pretending that you're someone that you're not. Uh, so the historical writings, and I mean, there were people wrote, not everything that was written, people write today, not everything that's written is written by an apostle or a prophet, but it doesn't mean it belongs in the Bible. But the fake, uh, Stephen described that process where they would publish something under the name of someone else and put words in their mouth. That was very common. 
and it was a way to get a message out. You know, if, if I write something, I said, uh, thus says Scott Smelser, you know, something, well, big deal. But if I say, oh, these are the words of so-and-so, if I can get people to believe that, it helps it be published. Let me show one quick example of a case where you can see exactly where that happened. I'm going to share my screen. This is from the Nag Hammadi text. That's why you're doing that, uh, Scott, let me uh, add to what you're saying. The apostles had and were recognized as the authority of God's word. They are the ones that were given the Holy Spirit, and the early Christians recognized they're the ones. That's why the false guys wanted to attach their name to it, because the apostles had the value, had the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? No, the authentic message. And so that's why it was important that, that the fake guys would put the apostles' name in there. Yeah, if you want to get your book to sell, so to speak, uh, you want it to have the uh, the stamp of authenticity on it, and people would sometimes lie to get their message heard. Yeah. So here's an example of this. This is going to take some words and put them in Jesus, put these words in Jesus's mouth, and it's not Jesus. And here's how we prove this. This is from the Nag Hammadi writings, which uh, some of them were written. The actual copies of texts that we have right around say 346 AD. Um, we know that from, I won't get into reasons why, but we know some of these manuscripts were written at that time. But there was a large collection of these that were found back in the 1940s in Egypt. This is not the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is something else. This is not about documents. And in that library, there's two different writings. One is a non-Christian perhaps pre-Christian Gnostic text, just philosophical text called Agnostus the Blessed. And another one is called the Sophia of Jesus Christ. Now, the one that doesn't have any reference to Christ at all or anything goes like this. I'll give a little sample of it. From Agnostus the Blessed. Agnostus the Blessed, to those who are his, rejoice in this that you know. Greetings. I want you to know that all men born from the foundation of the world until now are dust. While they have inquired about God, who he is and what he's like, they have not found him. The wisest among them have speculated about the truth of the ordering of the world. Speculation is not reached truth, for the ordering is spoken out in three different opinions by all the philosophers, since they do not agree. So that was this philosophical Gnostic writing that was in circulation. Then one of the Gnostics decided to put those words in Jesus' mouth and came up with a new writing. And this one is called the Sophia of Jesus. After he arose from the dead, his 12 disciples, seven women, continued to be his followers. The Savior appeared and he said, Peace be to you, my peace I give to you. They all marveled and were afraid. The Savior laughed and said to them, What are you thinking about? Are you perplexed? What are you searching for? Philip said, For the underlying reality of the universe and the plan. The Savior said to them, and then there you've got the Gnostic text, Eugnostus the Blessed. So it's very clear here, a Gnostic writer just took this other writing and said, I don't know the exact motive, hey, this will get more publicity if we say Jesus said it. Or, you know, if people believe more if we say Jesus said it, and just stuck the words into his mouth. And that got done a lot. So that would be an example of pseudepigrapha in the sense that it's putting words in Jesus' mouth. It's not, you know, claiming or it is claiming to be inspired if you claim that Jesus said it, um, but it's not actually from Jesus. 
Do you realize fake news is not new? <laughs> that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, it, it's important anytime that someone brings up something like this, one, that we listen and say, okay, what book are you concerned about? Because lots of times people don't really have a good idea of what specific writings we're talking about. And when pressed a little further, you realize you haven't really read it. Um, I think a lot fewer people would have taken the Da Vinci Code seriously if they would have taken a few minutes to read the Gospel of Thomas. There are some ridiculous things. I believe the Gospel of Thomas ends with a, a bit about the disciples asking about Mary inheriting the kingdom. And he says, well, she has to become a male to inherit the kingdom of heaven and some weird stuff that you don't, again, you just read it and you're like, that is not Jesus. Like This is not even close to what we have in, in the New Testament, um, in the Bible. Actually, I've got that quote, Liz, just pulled up right here. This is the Gospel of Thomas, which is not by Thomas, is 114 disconnected saints. And this is the last one. This is where the book ends. The book doesn't end with Jesus going and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. This is the end of the book. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us. Women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. So yeah. And Steve's assessment is right. You, you, some people get real impressed with this document. Well, yeah, read it. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it does not pass the smell test no. at all. <laughs> um, so so that, that's just a helpful general point, is, is to read the documents in question. Most of them will be pretty self-defeating. You can tell this is not from God. Um, and a second question is, well, what does the document teach and how does that line up with biblical teaching? And this is where we get to these two points in particular, where there's a question about baptism. And is it adults that should be baptized? Is baptism immersion? And the New Testament has some very clear answers on that question. Where would you guys like to go with that question to show baptism being for adults and immersion? I think of the eunuch first. I just uh, was reading about the story. Was it Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 8. Philip 8. And Philip had to go to the eunuch who was heading back down to Ethiopia. And he started, uh, the eunuch was reading from uh, Isaiah 53. And uh, Philip said, do you know what you're reading? And he said, no, unless someone show me. So he invited him up and started talking to him. And from Isaiah 53, he talked about, he started teaching him about Jesus. That's all it says that he, that Philip said. And then the next uh, sentence is, well, look, there's some water right there. What prevents me from being baptized? And they, and they both went down into the water. Said, Here's an adult who's reading, understanding what it meant, understanding that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. And where did he get the idea he needed to be baptized, immersed, from what Philip was teaching him? Yeah, and it's very clear from verse X8, verse 38. It says, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And this wouldn't be a question if they'd actually translated the word baptize. Um, the word baptize is a word that was they came up with that word. They didn't translate it. They transliterated it, which means that they put English letters where the Greek letters were. It's the Greek word baptizo, which is the verb 
or if they had translated it, it would mean to dunk or to immerse, to submerge. That is the idea of the Greek word. If Again, if they had just translated the word, uh, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he immersed him. Um, that's what the word literally means in the Greek. And there are several other passages we could go to. John chapter 3 talks about Jesus baptizing near Salim because water was plentiful there. Again, if baptism, which literally means to immerse, if it was pouring or sprinkling or something, you wouldn't need a lot of water to do it. Uh, but in the New Testament, you constantly and consistently see people being immersed with baptism because that's what the word baptize meant in the Greek. And, and the people were adults, no babies, no children. And the reason they were baptized is because they believed. Babies can't believe. Belief is, a pri is first, primary. And then they were baptized. So it is adults. And Acts 8 is a very good place to make that point for when Philip goes to Samaria, who believes and who gets baptized, back up around verse 12. But before we go to that, I want to show one example of how the word baptize is used in the Bible. Do you guys remember, But because as Stephen said, it didn't get translated. Uh, baptizo is a Greek word, uh, and if you translated it, it would be dip or immerse. Uh, baptisma, Greek word, if you translate it, would be uh, a dipping or, or, or immersion. Uh, in the Old Testament, do you remember a story of a fellow that was told to dip in a river? Naaman? Yeah, Naaman. Uh, he was the leper, and he was told, go dip in the river. Did he want to go dip in that river? No, he did not. That was an insult to him. And he left, and then his servant said what to him? If God... Told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you do it? <laughs> yeah. And so he turns around, and he goes and dips in the river. Now, that's in Hebrew. But guess what? The Hebrew got translated into Greek in the Septuagint, right? So take a look at this. This is the passage about that very thing. Um, he... Uh, had told him, go wash in Jordan. Naaman was very wroth, and he said, I thought he would do this or that, and I'd, he'd rather go to these others. But when his servant told him to do it, look at 2 Kings 5.14. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the river. Now, when this is the Hebrew right here, when they translated that into Greek, what word do you suppose they used for the word dipped? Uh, baptizo. Here we go. Let's go down to the Septuagint. There it is. See the B A P from math class pi T I F. That's the, your, there's your great Greek word there for baptize. So in the Old Testament, when he dipped in the river, he baptized. So yes, it's immersion. And as, as was already pointed out, you wouldn't need to get out of the chariot and boat, go down into the water if you were going to do something other than immersion. Another passage that's helpful in talking about, uh, it sometimes comes up when you're talking about um, uh, children being baptized or little babies, infants, is um, Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer and his household who are baptized. But one of the helpful things to point out in that text, if someone says, oh, but look, these households are baptized. Well, it says that um, in uh, Acts chapter 16, and uh, 
verse 32. Um, and this is, of course, where Paul and Silas have been in the prison singing and praying. And then there's the earthquake. The jailer thinks he's a dead man because all the doors are opened and they thought the prisoners had escaped. They hadn't. He says, we're still here. What must I do to be saved? Acts 8, 30, Acts 16, 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Everyone that who was baptized that night was also rejoicing because they had believed. You can dip a baby under the water. You can baptize them in that sense. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's biblical baptism. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're going to rejoice because they've believed in God. Um, baptism is not for a baby. It's for an adult. And it's for a believer, someone who has committed their life to Jesus Christ and is dying with him in baptism, dying with him in that immersion in water and being raised to walk in a new life. But, so the argument you're making is that Someone will say, well, his whole family had to include children. But when you go further down, well, first of all, isn't that an assumption, though, Stephen? When you say, well, they had to have babies in that household, that's an assumption. Right. But it's not an assumption, as you had put it out in verse 34, that everyone in that household rejoiced and believed. So that kind of tells me uh, no babies were there. Right. All adults. Yes, and it's just helpful to see that. And so if we can establish from Scripture that baptism is for an adult, a believer, and that baptism is immersion, which is literally what the word baptize means, then it's helpful to say, well, if we're examining other writings outside of what we have in the Bible, and they're saying something different about baptism, we need to stick with what we have in the Scriptures that's clear that no, this is what the scriptures teach. And we don't want to go outside of that. We don't want to let some other writing influence a very clear teaching from scripture. Right. What about, there's a comment that came in on the Q&A box um, talking about some of those, um, whether they're Apocrypha or other types of books. Just briefly, uh, are the books of Jasser or Enoch reliable? And what about Ezra? Yeah, as a dross. But they all fall into that same category of what you were talking about before. Yeah, so I think these are, go ahead, Scott. Before we leave baptism, I'd like to make a couple of real quick points uh, and then get right back to that. Um, but what Stephen said about Acts 16 is really significant about the, the, the Garden's family. Uh, a less important point, but helpful to remember is just because the biblical text says he and his household were baptized, that doesn't mean there were small children in it. Uh, there's four married men right here. Drew, you're a married man. How many infants are in your household? Zero. I'm a married man. How many infants in mine? Zero. Jonathan, you're a married man. How many infants in your household? Zero. Stephen. Stephen does. One. <laughs> and then I have, a, I have a toddler and an infant. Yeah. So to assume that well if it said household there had to be babies is an unnecessary thing but more importantly is the point that stephen made uh that the the same people that got baptized uh were the ones hearing the word rejoicing 
And I mentioned Acts 8, 12, but we didn't read it. I want to read that, and then we'll get right back to where y'all are going about these other texts. Acts 8, 12, just listen to this. Philip goes to the city of Samaria. It's a capital city uh, for the Samaritans. There would be a number of people that lived there, and not every household has babies, but if you look in your whole city, guess what some of the households do have? Uh, babies. Babies, yeah. Yet listen to the text. When they believed Philip preaching the good tidings concerning the name of the king, concerning the king of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Uh, that excludes infants. Yeah, he's not baptizing his little children, he's baptizing uh, adults, he's baptizing believers. Okay, so back now to the other direction y'all are going to go on these texts. Yeah, so th I think that brings us in some ways to our second question. Um, well, actually, we had a question come in uh, with the, um, are the books of Jasher and Enoch reliable, also Esdras? And again, this is where categorizing things, uh, we got the book of Jashar, which I believe is Old Testament. It's referenced in the Old Testament, but there's an interesting, this is an interesting example because I believe it's re referenced in Joshua, and one other place in the Old Testament, but we did not have anything even claiming to be the book of Jashar until centuries after Jesus. Is that, is that correct? Well, there, we don't have, right. There was a book of Jashar right. back then, and there's a number of other, there was uh, the book of the seer of Edo, the book of the wars of the Lord, um, there's a number of writings that we don't have, but people filled those in. And I was working on the book of Jasher. If y'all would like me to pull up some slides on it. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you mean? What did you mean when you said, no, we don't have the book of oh, Jasher? We're no longer extant. Uh, for example, um, uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We've got the letter he wrote that we call First Corinthians, where he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with fornicators, but here you've got a fornicator in your midst. You need to cast him out. So there was a previous letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians, but we don't have to have every letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians because even the, teach, the, the acts of Jesus himself, what does John say at the end of the Gospel of John? Not all of his uh, actions and things he did were written in the book. Right. Yeah. And, and if we did, the world itself couldn't contain the, the books that would be written. Right. 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 And so it, Paul, we Paul, know Paul established a church at Berea. Do you suppose he ever wrote a letter to them? Good Probably chance. So. Yeah, but we don't have to have every letter Paul wrote. We don't have to have, in Acts 2, when it says, we have part of Peter's sermon, and then it just says this, with many other words, he exhorted them. Do we have to know what all those other words are? No, no we don't. Need. So the rest of his sermon is not extant. We don't still have it. He said it. It's not recorded. We don't need to have it. Luke just sums up. And with many other words, he did. Um, Luke, John says, and many other signs Jesus did. We don't have to have them all. Uh, but people have later <clears throat> used that as an opportunity to make something up and say, this is it. And so that's what people have done with the book of Jasher. Later, somebody makes something up and says, this is it. Uh, same with the epistle of Laodicea. Later, somebody just sampled some different verses from Philippians and made about 14 verses and said, oh, this is the epistle to 
Laodiceans. And it's obviously just made up later, true. Do we know when that book of Jasher was made up? Uh, I'll pull up here, I'll show you a couple of them. One of them, some scholars believe was written around the 16th century. Uh, some have thought it might be earlier, but one of them, for instance, it, it lists French cities. Uh, and I was researching that earlier. I haven't gotten to which are the French cities yet. Uh, another one was written in the 1700s and the guy was put in prison for fraud for doing it. Uh, I'll pull that slide up here if I can find it. Sure. And so as we're thinking about this, I mean, this is another example of really just false writing. Uh, you know, the, the book of Jasher is, there is a true book of Jasher, but no, we don't have it. We, it has not survived the passage of time. And we now have at least two different documents claiming to be the book of Jasher. But again, we don't have them until centuries, centuries later. And there's good evidence to show that this is not actually um, the book of Jasher from, you know, that's referenced in the book of Joshua and other places. So if someone came out and said, made some claims about some truths and then referring to the book of Jasher, uh, they really don't have any historical um, foundation to say that these are truths. There's because we don't have the book of Jasher. We've got someone that claims it was written or someone that claims this is the book, but that wasn't written until about what, 1500s. Right. And so it's centuries later. And again, that casts a great amount of doubt when the only documents even claiming to be are written. Well, in the case of the book of Jasher, if we're going back to the days of Joshua, I mean, we're dealing with like millennia now uh, that have passed by. It's very dubious that that is actually authentic. So there was at one time a writing that was around that people had access to. So in Joshua 10, it said, isn't this written in the book of Jasher? And again, in Samuel, it refers to something as it's written in the book of Jasher. And so this was a writing that was around at that time. Oh, there, so we can actually say then, because Joshua said it, that the sun stood still in the mist. That's true, not because Jasher said it, but he's making the statement. Joshua's making the statement. And so it's in the text of Joshua, yes. And he's saying, this is also in the book. Well, actually, when we say Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua, I don't know yeah. that Joshua. No, I meant the book of Joshua. Right. Okay. But the, the, the text there refers to the book of Jasher. Uh, and here you've got the book of Jasher again referred to. So what happens then, people want to fill in the blanks and they see an opportunity. Mm. And so um, here is one. This is the one by published by translated supposedly here by uh, this fellow. Uh, and uh, it claims to have been adopted. I much approve of it, signed Wycliffe, so he says. Um, and it begins like this. That's the first page. And then it ends like this. He builds an ark and puts the book in it, which sounds kind of like the way you would describe a book if you were faking a book. Um, and then here's another one. Let me get to it. Uh, this is uh, 1840. This is some Jewish Midrash, if I remember correctly. There's been several of these. I believe this is the one that is Jewish Midrash, which was not originally 
maybe claiming to be the book of Jasher, but other people decided it was or claimed it was. I might have that detail wrong. Um, here, this mentions there are as many as five separate works by this title. Um, and in here, there's a list of cities. And I heard one guy explaining, and again, I didn't have time to finish this, but in chapter 10, it lists French cities, they said, and I haven't been able to go through here and spot which ones are the French cities. But French, these French cities, of course, didn't exist in the time of Joshua or Jasher. Uh, and so this is by that, they're able to kind of date the, this document. They put it around the 16th century. So like in the 1500s, uh, a, a Jewish rabbi was writing this and it got uh, labeled this later, but it's not the book of Jasher. So that's helpful just to, to realize, you know, uh, this is not the real deal. Again, with most of these, just a little bit of investigation will make it very clear that this is not authentic. This is not uh, to be considered biblical, but we live in an age of clickbait. And so many times uh, it's the things that are claiming oh, this has been held away from you and people have tried to suppress this. And now we got the truth. My red flags just always go up when you hear the sensational claims like, uh, let's, let's look a little deeper before we jump to conclusions and hit the share button. Um, let me so just say this, a, I'm sorry, go ahead. This is just important for people to do with all sorts of things. Before you hit share, do a little bit of digging. Um, it's really important to understand the sources. Uh, we live in the information age and there is a lot of false information that has not done its homework out there. And so as people who are trying to be representatives of God, trying to present what's true and what's faithful, do your homework before you start throwing stuff out there. And when other people are throwing claims out there, dig into it a little bit. Um, the first one to state his case seems right until his brother or neighbor comes and examines him. Sometimes we need to do some examining and th this is true sometimes even if the point is good. Um, people can use false information to support a true biblical point, but that actually hurts the cause of the truth when you use bad or misinformation to support the right conclusion. And so in this age of information and constant sharing of things, we need to be people who are very careful with information and with looking up sources. Yeah, so even if a New Testament or an Old Testament writer refers to one of these books, such as the one we just talked about, and uh, Enoch. Um, it doesn't mean that um, the doctrine from that book is something we need to um, obey. It's what the canon, the acceptable inspired writings message needs to be obeyed. And needs to be um, recognized as from God, and, and what? How does that relate to our our salvation? And um, which I want to lead that into the, the other point that some of these books may refer to um, multiple levels in eternity or something like that. Is that what was where, where that was? We don't we don't have anything in the New Testament that refers to these different levels. Uh, that I'm aware of, but the New Testament does talk about the hereafter, uh, what, what 
to expect with salvation, limited as it is. And it doesn't seem to match up with what some of these other books may uh, be implying, right? Yes, Scott, I don't know if you had something before we jump into that question or not. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, just when we talk about levels of like what happens after we die, there's a lot that we don't know. There's not a lot of, you know, super intense detail given, and we need to be very careful with pressing what we do have. But every time we see judgment presented in the scriptures, it is presented as uh, binary. I don't know if that's the best word. One of two main destinations. Uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus talks about the coming resurrection in terms of one place or another. John chapter 5, uh, this is what Jesus actually said. Um, in uh, John 5, in verse 28, uh, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One of two things are going to happen. Everyone's going to be raised from the dead. All the tombs will be empty. But there's a resurrection of life for some and a resurrection of judgment for others. The judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25, when he separates the sheep from the goats. Again, there's some symbolism there. But, you know, come, you blessed of my father, into the place prepared for you to those who are on his right. Depart from me into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels to those on his left. There, there, is, there is reward for one and punishment for the other. There are a couple of texts that talk about the idea. There's a text in Luke that talks about the idea of a slave who knew his master's will um, and a slave who didn't know his master's will, and they're both punished, but one gets many lashes and the other gets few. It may indicate some level of differences in judgment, but it's still levels of judgment that we're talking about it's not some kind of like in-between thing that a lot of places try to a lot of people try to speculate about like a purgatory or an in-between heaven and hell kind of thing the scriptures give no basis for something in between blessing and judgment they do give the idea potentially of levels of judgment or levels of punishment but not this in-between idea that so many writings outside the bible are trying to get trying to get that idea inserted um, and we just don't see basis for that in the, the writings that we have. Uh, what about, so this just came in, um, what about the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Another good example of one is in paradise and one is in torment. Um, and there's a great gulf in between. There's not anybody in that great gulf, so to speak. You know, you can't go from one place to the other. Um, and again, there's a lot of speculation over where exactly are they? We're not going to get into all of that. But there's a good place and there's a bad place. And it's, it's binary. Uh, and so even that story of the Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16 points us to this idea of one or the other. Um, and ultimately, God is the one who decides. We're not the judge, but God is. And God is the one who's going to do that in a perfectly just and merciful way in his infinite knowledge. He's the only one who uh, knows enough to make that final decision for everyone. A couple of other comments I don't want to overlook. Uh, I'd like it when people are coming in with comments and questions. Uh, referring back to the, the, house, the jailer's house, 
It could also, uh, TJ says, it could also be possible that the term whole household is a generalization. For, for instance, Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cartus, the brother, Romans 16, 23. Well, there may have been babies in the congregation, but that's just not the point it's trying to make. So it might not be fair to say that it was not possible for there to be small children in the jailer's household, simply not the point of the, of the account. That's right, we're saying it, it's possible, but the, the, the key point was there, all of those, they, those who believed and rejoiced were baptized. So even if there were infants in the house, they didn't rejoice and believe, it's impossible. So that is the key point. Thank you, TJ, for pointing that out. That is the key point. Those that believed rejoiced and were baptized. We, um, we'd also had a comment come in on uh, the Facebook page from Perry about uh, baptism being the sign of the covenant. Um, and there's many good points to be made there. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to all of the uh, questions today. We're out of time. Um, but all, all that we've looked at today shows when we look at the, the Bible, at what we have preserved for us, then we have the answers to these questions. And if we come across some other writing, let's take a look at it, read it. Does it pass the smell test? <laughs> Does it seem to line up with what the scriptures teach? Most of the time, you'll tell real quick, this is way out in left field. Um, and then if it does teach something and we compare it to what we know is scripture, we need to let what we know to be scripture speak and be the final word on any Bible question, whether it's baptism or final judgment or whatever it is. And we need to trust the Lord with that um, because the word that Jesus spoke is what will ultimately judge us at the last day. Thank you, everybody. All right, well, thank you guys for um, the comments and for your thoughts. Thank you guys in the audience um, for the question. Uh, if you'd like to discuss any of these things further, like maybe in particular a certain book in the Apocrypha or things like that, um, you can let us know. We'd be happy to go through that with you all. Um, and, and one thing that I want to point out um, just in, in kind of a different way, if a document says something that's true, that doesn't mean that the entire document is true. <laughs> um, like uh, like uh, the book of Enoch. Uh, I personally haven't read the book of Enoch, but it very well could have a statement or two in it that are quotes from inspired scripture that are true. That doesn't make the book of Enoch an entirely true document. Um, and so we need to keep that in mind when we're reading other things as well. Um, but if you have any other questions uh, or any uh, concerns or, or topics that you'd like us to discuss here on BibleQuest, um, you can let us know at BibleQuest.org. Um, or if you have another um, book of the Bible or a, a difficult Bible text or something like that, that you'd like us to discuss as well, we'd be happy to do that. You can just let us know. Um, and Lord willing, we'll see you guys next Tuesday at 2 p.m.